The Guardian. If you're a fan of British independent cinema, here's an offer from Guardian Film you won't want to miss. Right now on guardian.co.uk, you can watch the award-winning film Skeletons starring Jason Isaacs and you can save 10% just for being a podcast listener. Skeletons is a story of a pair of travelling psychic detectives helping people remove the metaphysical skeletons from their closets. It's eccentric, heartfelt and very, very funny. The film costs just £3.49 to stream or £5.49 to download. And you can save a further 10% by entering the promotion code SAVEME. To check out the trailer and to find out more, head to guardian.co.uk forward slash skeletons. Hello, it's Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. Coming up, our guest this week is the mighty king of reggae, David Rodigan, MBE. Pete Perfides takes us back to 1967 through the pages of a music magazine. The Charlatans frontman Tim Burgess talks to us about his new solo album, Oh No, I Love You. And there's three more new songs to review in Singles Club. That's all here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. So joining us this week, I, I couldn't be more of the excitement that has gone round the Music Weekly office uh, due to the news that David Rodigan, MBE, is with us in the studio. Hello. Hello, and I am privileged to be here. I consider this to be a real big privilege. <laughs> <laughs> you are literally too kind. So what are you doing at the moment? What are you up to? Tell us. You seem to be continually, but I follow you on Twitter, and you appear to be continually busy. Yes, I'm on the road a lot, which is great, because I've gone back to that. You know, having been an actor in the 70s, I remember working in repertory, where a lot of it was trains and, and, and buses and, you know, touring around the north of England. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of gone back to where I started in the 70s, touring, only it's not theatre, it's, it's, it's playing songs to music and sharing my love of music to like-minded souls all over the world. And the amazing thing about it is that I'm continually stunned by the age I mean, obviously, I'm getting older, but the, so therefore the audiences are getting younger. And um, the sort of music that they still get completely buzzed off on. I am very busy touring. I still have a show on Kiss on, on Sunday nights. I've been there for 20 years. And I had a lovely summer season with the BBC on Radio 2 and uh, on Six Music. So it's been great. I, I'm still doing what I love to do, and I'm very fortunate to be able to say that. When you say that you're surprised by the music that younger audiences respond to, by this you mean that you're playing kind of older reggae stuff, you're playing 70s reggae? Yeah, I I will always, in every set, introduce my salute to the veterans. And and that will begin maybe with 5446 by Toots, Mm -hmm. who's still touring. Mm-hmm. You know, still, yeah, yeah, yeah. still packing them in, a Bob Marley sequence, a Desmond Decker sequence. And it never ceases to amaze me that with most of those songs, you only occasionally have to bring the fader up because these 18-year-old students in universities are singing along to every syllable. Well, what does that do? That just tells me that this music is still very special. And that period, that analog period in the late 60s, early 70s, was so rich There were so many wonderful records that were made uh, that have stood the test of time. It's amazing to see somebody come up to you afterwards and go... The third record, you know, when you did the salute to the veterans, the third, what was the third one? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier on, before we started recording, that, that there is something about those analogue days and something about the fact that musicians were working together in a studio environment. So you could hear the one, yeah. two, one, dun, 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 dun. and if the singer didn't get it right, they had to do it again. So there was that. <clears throat> and famously, Cox and Dodd on Talk Back, if you don't get it right on the next take, it'll be an instrumental. <laughs> Clement Seymour Dodd. <laughs> Brilliant. Coxon. One of the things that I really, what I really like about seeing your sets is, of course, with the culture of sound clashes, so much is about having dub plates that are completely rare or that nobody else has heard before. And when, I've, when, I, went to, when I went to see you at the, like, the Notting Hill Carnival Major Laser Red Bull, gig that you did a few years ago and when people didn't know the tracks they were shazamming them which is an app on your iphone and so you can kind of you if you don't know a song you, you put that song i know what shazam is yeah i'm not just, just checking just checking we all know what it is and then it would come up and it's just really funny seeing how sort of technology helps you kind of yeah kind of young people try and hear all those songs which which might 
linked to why people I never thought of that. Their songs, yeah. I never thought of that, Kieran. You've got a point there. That why would they and how could they know something so quickly? I mean, I've been in situations with my youngest son, who's 22, and I've said, you know, oh, what? And he'll just go, and and within seconds, okay, we we know YouTube and so on, but it is that fast. But the being able to recognise a song by with an app is 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 truly phenomenal back in the day in the west indies what they used to do as i'm sure you know is they would play gramophone records with the labels scraped off so they go to america in the late 50s they buy these rhythm and blues records from uh, miami and from um, new orleans and they bring them back and they play them on the sound systems and they'd retitle them so the idea was that it was called the cox and hop it was actually call of the gator by willis jackson but no one knew that because you couldn't buy those records unless you were able to get to america so there was that whole exclusivity thing about this is called the Cox and Hop. You know, 10 years later, you found out it wasn't. <laughs> but in those days, that was all they knew. And the whole thing of sound system culture was based on exclusivity, playing something that, that the other guys couldn't play because they didn't know what it was called. I mean, it was another world then, but hey. One thing I've never, actually, the story I've never heard is I know you started on radio in 78, am Correct. I right? Yeah. How did you go from being an actor you know, a jobbing actor, to being sort of Britain's foremost reggae. And presumably at that time, there wasn't very many people playing reggae on the radio anyway, and it's still quite an underground, sort of viewed as a kind of quite countercultural, you know, phenomenon. How did how did that happen? Where, where did the, the, the sort of jump come? What was the thing that set you off? An actress who was my girlfriend at the time, Pauline Siddle, mm-hmm. wrote to Radio London when she heard them announcing on the Sunday lunchtime reggae show that they were looking for a new presenter. She didn't tell me she'd written to them. And a letter came back saying, your audition is Thursday at 12.30. I went to the BBC Radio London studios on Marylebone High Street. And after 15 minutes, uh, the producer, David Carter, stopped it and said, it was a very interesting interview, but we need a black presenter. Thank you for coming. And I left and didn't think any more about it. They played the tape to a number of black record producers and record company people in the world of reggae. And apparently they said, you should use him. And what they actually did was they, it was me and Tony Williams started the show together as co-hosts. Uh, it, it came about as an accident. I listened to the show. It was the only show on, on British radio at the time that was playing reggae uh, consistently. It was every Sunday lunchtime. It was called Reggae Town on BBC Radio London. And Steve Barnard was the presenter. Steve was leaving. So as a, I was at college then, when I, when I first started listening to it, I was at the Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama. <laughs> and I used to have a cassette and tape job, you know, recording the songs. Yeah. And so by 1978, I was a jobbing actor and I passed the audition. So I could pre-record that show, Sunday Lunchtimes, and still carry on working in the theatre. I was actually working at the Albany Empire in Deptford oh, really? at the time uh, with a combination company, John Turner and those guys. And um, what, so but, that's but, how it started. What, what, what sort of sparked your interest? I mean, obviously, you were in a position where you could present, you know, the, the people, th- you know, your girlfriend at least, thought, here is a man who would be ideal to present a reggae mm-hmm. show. What had sparked your interest in, in reggae and Jamaican music? Just sure. like so many of us in the 60s, you know, every time I think how lucky I am, you know, I heard those changes. We saw those bands, the Stones, the Beatles, the, the whole Stax movement, Atlantic, Wilson Pickett, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations. And then from Jamaica in the summer of 66, 67, these songs rolled in from the West Indies, this driving scar beat, Prince Buster, Madness, The Guns of Navarone, and 007, Shantytown, Desmond Decker. I was 16 in the summer of 67. And when you're 16, I mean, that not that just... And it was a wild, hot summer, and... We were on the beach in Margate, and we were hanging out at Sloopy's Bar. There was a basement above the Grapes Coffee Bar on the seafront, and the jukebox only had West Indian records on it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Right. And I didn't really know a great deal about the music, but I heard this, this drive, this driving backbeat. I couldn't even understand some of the lyrics because it was strong patois, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of my fascination and I'd have to say what eventually became an obsession with the music of the West Indies. But that's how it started. And it was very, very popular. I mean, 1964, Millie was on ITV's sure. Ready, Steady, Go, singing My Boy Lollipop. Prince Buster was a bit of a street hero. So it was the music for young mods to dance to, and uh, we loved it. And I feel like you're such a theatrical performer as a DJ as oh, well. Yes. I mean, when, I, when I've seen you, you know, you're just all over the place and kind of completely frenetic energy. And I'm sure that your acting background must contribute to well, that a little I, bit, maybe. Part, partly, I guess, uh, Kieran, but I'll tell you what, that when I was young, as soon as I went into a club, I couldn't wait to dance. Yeah. 
It really was. It was that. Uh, you know, the Stage Club in Oxford, Oxford Town Hall, wherever, when we first started raving in London or Burton's and, and places like that. As soon as I got in and I heard a, a crazy backbeat soul record, I couldn't wait to dance. And it's part of that. I, I find it almost impossible to play records and not just in the end. It just, I, I have to go. I, you know, I have to dance. You're responsible for probably my favourite YouTube clip ever. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a remarkable uh, clip of you DJing. And it's, on one level, you just look mental. But on another level, I can't think of anything I've seen that expresses just a total abandoned joy at the sound of a record. You put a record on and you give it a sort of intro. Is that the thing where you were going to Seaview Gardens? Yes, Seaview Gardens. I've got the protection. And, and then you just sort of do this kind of... Basically, sort of jumping and shouting thing, and it's just brilliant. I, I do you know how many times people have made that comment. Ultimately, I, I couldn't believe this one. I was in Berwick Street Market, heading down to Jazz Soul Jazz round the corner, and this chap walked up to me and said, "It's you, it's you, Sea View Gardens. You're that guy." <laughs> and I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, you're you're Rodigan, aren't you?" And I said, oh, what? And he said, the video, the video. He said, I don't like reggae and I didn't know who you were, but somebody showed me that clip and we use that to encourage our salesmen to have enthusiasm. We use it for salespeople training. Brilliant. He shook my hand, a suited and booted fellow in Berwick Street Market, and off he went about his business. That's amazing. That's my claim to fame. I mean, the Jamaican music business is, is famously shady, yes. um, full of people who indulge in sharp practices. It's also quite a closed environment to outsiders you know it, it, it's it's his own world it operates along its own did you find that easy to infiltrate did you I mean you you're a figure in Jamaica as well I mean you're, you're very well known there it's not you know as, as, a, as a DJ or as a selector as they say over there was it an easy thing to do were people distrustful of you at first or? I think there was a certain a, a amount of uh, surprise certainly uh, my first p- professional gig in Kingston was I mean, you, you could have heard a pin drop when I walked onto the stage really? because they'd heard me on the Jamaican radio, but they didn't know I was white. <laughs> so, and that was Barry Gordon, who was my opposite number in Kingston on the radio. So I'd gone there to do a show for Capital Radio and record it, and what, three shows, and, and he was one of my guests. So he reciprocated and said, come on my show on the Saturday night, which I did. And that led to a clash that night, which he instigated during the news. And four hours later, we were still clashing. And this was 1983, so it was all cassette and tape island-wide. And that just spread like, you know, you'd call it a viral now, but in those days it was cassette and tape, cassette and tape. And so the, the advantage I had, if you like, was the fact that I was a presenter on British radio. They knew that. I was playing their records. They knew about that. And so when I finally went down there in 1970, January 1979, and I went to Orange Street and Prince Buster and, and Tubbies and so on. Some of them knew of me, so I had an advantage rather than just, you know, who are you? But there was certainly, a, a, I mean, a, in certain areas, I mean, an absolute astonish. you know, oh my, who's this white guy? What are you doing? It's a, what, you know, it's a, it was, in fact, in some respects, I had the element of surprise was an advantage because it was like, it was that, you know. Um, but yes, uh, to a degree, uh, but I have to also say, uh, Alexis, that I was given so much love on that island in those initial years. I really, when I think back on it, how I was welcomed with open arms. And I think it was quite simply because Jamaicans were very proud to know that somebody from another country not only cared about their music, but knew about it mm. and uh, was able to to play it with the enthusiasm that they felt it justified, was justified. And that, I think, was the, was the key that, you know. I think as a result of that, at the moment, with sort of Jamaican-based culture, there's a lot of dancehall and bashment with what the heatwave are doing, uh, that kind of thing, in a lot of clubs at the moment. And I think that, yeah, what you've done with reggae has really spurned this sort of desire to hear all these sort of Jamaican sounds. And as a result, when you go out now, it's really rare, that even if you go to a dubstep night, which I know you're a fan of, yeah. uh, kind of dubstep nights or even grime, you always hear, you know, a bashment injection or, you know, all these kind of things because it seems like now it's become just, you know, so normal and so embedded in any kind of base club night culture. I think you've been quite responsible for that, which is good. Thank you, and rightly so, because that that music does drop in well, and and that sort of Sean Paul fever of two thousand and five, two thousand and six, that dancehall stuff was significant. I think. Uh, right, brilliant. Well, we'll be hearing more. Uh, David will be joining us for Singles Club um, shortly. But first, it's the start of a new occasional series called. Pete Perfides' Parallel History of Pop, where Pete explores the contents of an old music magazine and discovers the world of music 
as it was. Let's take you back to 1967 and leave you there. Hello, welcome. My name is Pete Freedies. Thank you very much for joining me in this parallel history of pop as seen through the pages of a music paper that came out at pretty much its corresponding time at some point in history this week. I've got Disc and Music Echo, which was a popular magazine, uh, music magazine, colour, not all of them were colour, and it's October the 14th, 1967. It's a busy week in pop. we got Procore Harem. We'll be trying to explain Homburg, their current on page seven. Bee Gees are on the cover. Bee Gees get the hump. That alludes to the fact that they're battling for number one in the chart uh, against Engelbert Humperdinck. And there's a bit of a vogue for this, obviously, because a few months previously, the, the Beatles were engaged in a chart battle with Engelbert, who's released me, kept Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields off the top spot. Please release me, let me go. Some old music magazines smell nicer than others, and I, I, I'm happy to report that this particular copy of Disco Music Echo is a peculiarly fragrant one. Now, it's a very busy week in pop. There's a great column in, in Disc and Music Echo, you get called Scene. And the great thing about Scene is it looks as though it's kind of it's written in the same amount of time it takes to read. It's just kind of flailing random facts taken from press releases and overheard things in the, in the scene office. So we've got um, Engelbert Humperdinck was looking quite bored while singing The Last Waltz these days, and uh, who can blame him? And then um, traffic record producer Jimmy Miller, back from America last week, and very free with his Rolo chocolates at the tour's opening night. It's good to know. Unbelievable, but the whole of Radio 1 comes from a room 12 feet square. That's literally a standalone news story in this week's disc. <laughs> and now about that. Now then. Watch out for beautiful Chris Farlow recording of Michael Darvo's The Handbags and the Glad Rags that your granddad had to sweat so you could buy at the end of November. I think they need to shorten the title of that song and it could uh, do quite well. Ever seen a blind man cross the road Trying to make the other side Who is the strange disc reader who sends a dozen letters a week, each under a different name, asking about Anita Harris's legs? I don't know if that's a rhetorical question. It's very one I'd quite like to know the answer to. I'd just like uh, to give a pound to someone who could stand up and explain to me uh, I Am the Walrus by the Beatles. Anyway, moving through the pages, the fragrant pages of Disc and Music Echo, uh, this caught my eye. This is a <laughs> strangely candid uh, explanation for Lulu's absence from, from a gig that she was due to play at Nantwich Cheshire. It tells us that she's got a new single out, Lulu Loves to Love Love, and uh, it says um, she was guest of honour at the Woman of the Year luncheon. People don't have luncheons anymore, do they? <laughs> at London's Savoy Hotel on Monday. On Saturday, she missed an appearance at Nantwich, Cheshire. Her manager, Marion Massey, says she was very upset, mainly because it was such a ridiculous thing to happen. She simply forgot all about the date and spent the evening at home going over the script for her new three-of-a-kind TV series. Maybe they didn't need to be that honest, I don't think. As trailed on the cover, Proko Haram, who was very big news at the time, and all the other bands loved Proko Haram because uh, White Shade of Pearl came out and everyone thought he had pushed pop along a bit. It has been said, runs the feature, it has been said Proko Haram is a group with a negative attitude. This is not so, although I would be the first to admit that interviewing and finding something new about Proko Haram is not the easiest of tasks, especially in the somewhat cramped dressing room at BBC's Crackerjack Studios. That's a nice detail. Oh, the no-alls here. What do you want to say? Actually, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Procol Harum will be in the show along with the Bee Gees and Lulu and Long John Baldry and featuring discs by the anyway, I'm just going to go back because something else caught my eye. 
The Boy Wonder, Stevie Hits Britain and he's a knockout. I know the gist of this piece is that maybe it's surprising to see Stevie Wonder doing what a lot of lesser pop names firmly refuse, a British ballroom tour. But there was Mr Wonder at Dunstable's California Ballroom on Friday and Forest Gate's Upper Cut Club in London's East End on Saturday before moving out into the provinces, singing all his hits, playing drums, playing harmonica, laughing with the crowd, sweating with the crowd. But why ballrooms? Bob Farmer, the reporter in question, is not going to let it lie. I really don't know, says Stevie. I don't really have much to do with the booking side of things. And I guess he wouldn't really have a hang-up about ballrooms or, you know, what venues look like for, you know, patently obvious reasons. So maybe that's part of the reason. Anyway, if you bought Disco, Disco Music Echo on the day that it came out, October the 14th, 1967, you'll be excited to know that tonight Stevie is playing Streatham Locarno. I wonder if Streatham Locarno is even there still. Moving through the page, we've got some great adverts for new singles out on Decca this week. The, the Ron Grainer Orchestra put out the theme to The Prisoner, which I imagine is probably worth quite a lot of, quite a lot of money now. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> Another good thing about Disco Music Echo is it tells you who's on tonight's Top of the Pops. It comes out on Thursday, so it says on tonight's Top of the Pops. The Hollies, the Box Tops, the Trogs, Stevie Wonder, presumably hot-footing it back from Streatham, Bobby Gentry, the Kinks, Proko Harum, and the ubiquitous Engelbert Humperdinck. And Penny Valentine, who was Disc's most well-known reporter, is not so impressed with uh, The Who's new single, I Can See For Miles. I can't really say I was knocked out with this record as I expected to be, which is a shame because I hate to be disappointed. None of the charm that one's come to expect of Townsend's compositions. It's hard and it's driving. It reminds me in many ways of their earliest stuff, like Anyway, Anyhow. Uh, it has a tight, crashing aggressiveness with Moon falling onto his drums and plenty of room for Pete to circle his armour. She's making this sound brilliant, I have to say. <laughs> Daltrey insinuates uh, the bitter word, and it sounds like eight electric trains, not seven or nine, eight electric trains, going through a tunnel. Having read all that, it sounds good. There you go, she obviously came to the same conclusion herself. Having read all that, it sounds good. I just think it seems very long, and usually for me, the Who can't make a record that's too long. That she seems very. Confl- I think it's growing on her, even as she writes it. Letters. Pop Post was uh, Disco Music Echo's weekly letter slot. And uh, Scott Walker makes my blood boil. He's infuriating and pathetic. He seems a miserable person who thinks only of himself and how unhappy he is. He really enjoys making a martyr out of himself. It's about time he gave some thought to those less fortunate than himself. Uh, that's from Cathy Lyons, 89 Airfield Road, RAF Marham in Kings Lynn, Norfolk. I love the way they print the full address. That's amazing. Poor Scott, isn't it awful to have fans? And imagine asking for your autograph. Aren't they dreadful? I'm sick to the teeth of reading about Scott Engel's bid for privacy. He should be grateful that people do recognise him. Belt up, Scott. And if you want peace, join a monastery. That's from Sandra Feldman. She's cheered up in the interim. Oh, no, he hasn't. He he punches pieces of meat on slightly um, inaccessible records in the port of Amsterdam where the sailors all meet there's a sailor who eats only fish heads and tails he will show you his teeth that have rotted too soon that can swallow the moon that can haul up the sails greetings poppickers we haven't looked at the chart of course the disc top 30 which uh, it sits on page, proudly on page three next to a column called Hit Talk by Tony Blackburn, headlined Seekers, They Don't Mean a Thing to Me. Controversial. 
It's amazing looking at the charts for this week because there's so many records that just kind of sit in the canon and as absolute classics. And so you've got sort of uh, Stones with We Love You down 7 to 30. Proko Haram doing very well up uh, 14 places to 16 with Homburg. And uh, then the top, t- t- very impressive top 10. No move for the small faces at nine with Ichiku Park. Can you imagine a, a world in which people have only just heard Ichiku Park? Box tops up to three. Uh, no, up to seven, three places from ten with the letter, which is already number one in America this week. Dino Ross Supremes, uh, down one to five with Reflections. And uh, the top three, up three, two, three. Massachusetts from the Bee Gees. Up one to two, Traffic with Holding My Shoe. At number one, Engelbert with the last one. So he's winning the battle to be number one over the Bee Gees. And that concludes... October the 14th, 1967, in the pages of Disc and Music Echo. Thank you very much to Peeper Feeders. We'll have another episode of that for you next month. Singles Club is upon us. Uh, everybody knows the drill. Uh, me, Kieran, and our guest bring in a new track they like. David, we'll start with you. Guest first. Let's hear your choice. David Rodigan's choice for Singles Club this week. That's Analog Steak by More Sounds, remixed by Danny Skrilla. David, tell us about More Sounds. Tell us about Danny Skrilla. Tell us why you picked this track. Okay, I was absolutely blown away by it. The energy. Mm. It just reminded me of a vintage King Tubby Dove from the mid-70s. As it leapt out of the studio speakers when I first heard, what is this? Who is this? Uh, It was my son Oliver who introduced me to it. And I was blown away by it. I found out it's by More Sounds, who I believe is from... And this is the thing now, More Sounds... Names of DJs are often so bizarre. More Sounds uh, is actually a person, I believe, a DJ from... Paris. Danny Skrilla did the remix. I believe he's from Germany. It's released on Cosmic Bridge. Um, I think that's the label. It's a British, uh, a London-based label. But they sample Desmond Ballantyne, a.k.a. Ninja Man, the Don Gorgon. I mean, that's not the re- only reason I like it, but I've always loved his tone of voice because he has just this amazing tone. Uh, it smacks of the way in which early jungle used yardy Jamaican samples but essentially it's just the fact that when we get back to basics and you listen to a dubstep night and and people said how come you're into dubstep you know I thought you're into reggae I said you need to go to a dubstep session and be in fabric and listen to Casper or James Breakage playing those songs and feel them and hear them in context and when I first did that I was like this is how I used to feel you know, when I was 17, hearing Scar records, it's the same energy. And you strip away the vocals, you strip away the melody, but you're left with a, with a wall of sound. Does that wall of sound work? And for me, on that record, it does. And I played it for the first time in Heidelberg, Germany, a few weeks ago, and the response was absolutely... Really? In fact, I'm still getting Twitter on it. What was that song? You know, who was it by? Similarly, it was a track last year by Dub Physics featuring MC Strat. Um, hold up a bank with a banana which had that similar groove and (laughs) great great name (laughs) Uh, well that's it was termed hold up a bank with a banana it was actually called marker but um, the key line was hold up a bank with a banana but it's 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 discovering exciting new because you can't just live in the past you know you you have to seek and find new music and I, I thought that was very exciting do you find the majority of new music that you're playing at the moment is coming from outside of Jamaica or is it really yes I'm afraid why, so. Why is that? Because Jamaica has been caught up in a loop, uh, which is its its own style, which appeals to young street dancers in Kingston, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And it is not reggae, and it is not really dancehall. It's a fusion of hip-hop. That, and they've, they're referring to it as island pop. But for me, a lot of it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. 
it's quite separate to what we'd refer to as reggae or one drop or or dancehall. It's another style, and a lot of it just, I'm afraid, floats over my head. I'm very excited by other things that I hear from other countries, mm-hmm. and I think Europe, particularly in Germany and Italy, are coming out with some very interesting things that are traditional reggae, mm-hmm. uh, as well as one drop and dancehall. You know, I was in Sweden last weekend, and I had mm-hmm. million styles from Stockholm come on and mash up the place on a rhythm built by two French producers from Paris. There was no direct Jamaican connection other than that million styles who's Swedish Japanese can talk fluent Jamaican patois. Right, I mean, right, how right. bizarre is that? <laughs> Kieran, what did you make of this? Is this a name familiar to you, sound? Yes. I, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting what you were saying about a lot of that coming from other places other than Jamaica. And I think that Major Lazer probably has a huge kind of responsibility within that, you know, in terms of being in the clubs and having mainstream culture and being sampled everywhere. Uh, and I think that as a result, sort of reggae underpins everything. You know, grime MCs will kind of wrap a few verses in patois and, you know, in, in dubstep nights, like you were saying, you know, in forward. As much as I think that now we think of dubstep as being a, lo- a slightly harder um, having a harder energy actually it is this sort of slow creep it is you know it is a similar energy to how you would consume reggae in a club and that's what I really liked and I like that I like that you're a fan of dubstep because I guess you wouldn't automatically put the two together because it's not as soulful music I suppose like lyrically and vocally as reggae and so I feel like and you feel like the two are quite I, I would separate. actually disagree with that I would really? say that perhaps it's not as religious you know explicitly okay. religious music like a lot of reggae is um, I would say that something there's loads of really soulful kind of you know that hyperdub kind of label burial stuff I mean it really gets you on a visceral level we need to talk however about we're not sorry. here to talk about burial we're <laughs> sorry. here to talk about sorry, yes. state no, and I, yeah and I loved it I loved I loved the sort of <clears throat> the dubstep element of it and of course like what you're saying about it being really forward-looking yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I couldn't categorise it. I didn't necessarily strike me as being a dubstep track. I wouldn't have said it was a dubstep no, track. No, well, I don't know what I don't know what it is. No. I mean, if it, I don't know if it is classified as dubstep. It just it it smacked to me of of what excited me about the music of Jamaica. It had that same King Tubby meets the Rockers Uptown Augustus Pablo feeling to it. Brilliant. Well, look, it's featured on a free Cosmic Bridge EP. Uh, you can download it via facebook.com forward slash, all one word, the next bit, Cosmic Bridge Rex. Um, Analog State by More Sounds, remixed by Danny Skrilla. On to Kieran's Choice. <laughs> It's Charlie XCX. That you pronounce it? It's not X or something like that. No, XCX. And that's uh, so far away. Uh, Kieran's choice uh, for this week. Kieran, tell us about uh, Charlie XCX. Tell Uh, us about so far away. um, Charlie XCX, also known as. Charlotte Aitchison uh, is a Aitchison <laughs> is a London-based singer-songwriter, and I first heard her a few years ago doing the vocals on a track by Starkey called "Lost in Space," which was sort of a really weird, kind of intergalactic, spacey-sounding track. And I, and I really loved her then. I haven't heard from her for ages and ages. And then in the last few months, she released a track called "You're the One," who had a brilliant "The Internet" remix. And then from there, she she kind of, well, this has landed on the blogs. It's not yet released. Um, and I really liked it. I was a little bit worried about bringing it in because I thought it might be a bit too gender specific. You know, she sounds very girly and she's sort of, it's a little whine. There's all those breathy vocals and she's sort of whining about being heartbroken. And, you know, there's something. They get very, heartbroken too. Very girlish about that. Um, I, 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 thought she got, I thought she sounded a lot like Martina Topley Bird, uh, Tricky's former foil, a rapping foil on, oh. on, on the first Tricky album. Um, she has a very similar kind of deadpan right. style, if listeners remember. I'm sure they do. Uh, Max and K by Tricky. Um, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a, a sort of good blend of uh, the sort of commercial commerciality of the chorus, commercialness of the chorus, uh, with a kind of quite uncommercial, downbeat, downcast sort of rapping style. I thought it worked really well. David? I thought, uh, absolutely, the contrast was quite surprising. It didn't give itself immediately to me. Mm -hmm. And then I found myself humming it, because I think with music, 
especially when songs don't give themselves to you initially, that always encourages me to go back and seek and find again because often they will give themselves over. And I was quite surprised when she changes from that haunting, willow, wispy, just floating vocal into this very downbeat, flat, dat, dat rap. I think it's got a lovely quality to it, and I understand why I can understand why you chose it. Thank you. Excellent. So that is out in the rain. You're really pleased. Look, yeah, David, yeah. David Rodigan liked your track. You're, look at that. I do. He never, never. When I liked your track, you couldn't care less, could you? God, blimey. Um, that's around and about on the internet. Is it? Yes. Is, it's um, not coming. It's, it's coming out this month on Warner. Yeah, and she's uh, due to release an album next year. Okay, wonderful. Uh, finally, it's my choice. <laughs> Uh, Elephant by Tame Impala uh, the first single I think from the uh, forthcoming second album by uh, the, the Australian band Tame Impala remixed by Canyons I don't know I don't actually know anything about Canyons at all I do know a lot about Tame Impala um, their first album uh, was a fantastic record um, I think they didn't play very many live dates over here but very warmly received and there is, seems to be quite a lot of heat behind the second album you know in a year that hasn't been a great year for sort of guitar music or, or, or alternative music there seems to be a feeling this might be their moment to break through why do I like this record you Kieran when I sent it to you said I heard the first time I heard this I thought me basically you thought of me um, it, it combines lots of things that I like about music it can it's 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 a really interesting sort of forward-looking piece of psychedelia I love I love psychedelia the beat is somewhere between the sort of the classic early 70s rock and roll part two Gary Glitter beat which is always fantastic. I love that kind of glam rock beat. And it all sounds a bit like the theme tune from Doctor Who. You can't, you cannot go wrong with, with this. It also goes all over the place. There's another remix of it by, of all people, Todd Rundgren, which is even weirder and even more sort of off its head. And I am hugely excited to hear Tame Impala's album. They seem to have moved forward, I certainly in terms of songwriting. The first album was very... Uh, you know, kaleidoscopic sounding, but songs seem to be quite a lot stronger, I think, on this album. And, yeah, you know, if you haven't heard them and you're a fan of MGMT or The Flaming Lips or any of those sort of great latter-day psych bands, um, check them out. David? Yeah, and new territory to me, new country. <laughs> uh, obviously, I discovered that they are from Perth in Australia. The sound, it's certainly rhythmically, um, and I, I wasn't able to catch all the vocals. I've not had time to study it as much, I confess, as, as Kieran's. Um, however, most interesting. I mean, in the 70s, I had a, a bit of a love affair, to say the least, with other forms of music apart from. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a fan, for example, of, of uh, All Right Now, uh, right. Free, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that driving beat. To me, what I heard was, was most interesting, and, and, I, and I would need to, to, to discover more. I'm really intrigued to know more about Canyons, who remixed it, because uh, it, it is quite a, a striking sort of reinvention. They kept the song whole. Kieran? Yeah, what I liked about this was that there was a consistent march through it that I felt like I could sort of hook onto. And a lot of the time with a lot of psychedelia, I feel like I get a little bit lost with the wall of noise or too many sounds and I sort of drift in and out. Uh, And actually, I listened to the the Todd's remix that you sent and that was just way too crazy for me. It's a bizarre remix. I don't know what what Todd Rundgren's up to (laughs) these days, but it's it's a really, really odd bit. One really strange bit with a sort of scratching at the end of it and stuff like that. It's just like... Like, proper. It's too much. So comparatively, this was you know, this quite is, This is very much, yeah, the, the sort of more commercial <laughs> end of what they're doing. Um, um, yeah, and that's what I liked about it. And the sort of, yeah, it, feel, it felt very sort of theatrical, you know, so mm. quite dramatic. And actually, that's one of the elements that I do like about some of the psychedelia you've been schooling me in, <laughs> is that, there, you know, it does feel quite highly performative. And, you know, there is lots going on and they really own it. And there's a real confidence to it. Yeah, yeah, I hope they're like. I've never seen them live because I think I, I think I might say they only played one British date on the last tour. I, I might be completely wrong about that. And I kind of hope they're the sort of band that do have a bit of a show and kind of, yeah. and they're not just sort of you know staring at their shoes because um, <laughs> it would be quite sad if there was this kind of amazing music playing and there was no uh, presence on stage. You can go either way with bands like this, in my experience. Um, the Nicki Minaj of psychedelia. The Nicki Minaj. 
<laughs> you know what? Yeah, I couldn't think of anything I'd want more Nicki than the Nicki Minaj. If somebody could actually produce a sort of psychedelicized version of Nicki Minaj, that would basically be my favourite artist. Where, I've got to ask you this because it's rolling around my head now: psychedelic rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of of the origins of that, where would you classify the origins of psychedelic rock? First two psychedelic records. Uh, it's an amazing act of serendipity happens that they're made at exactly the same time on different sides of the Atlantic, and the other people couldn't possibly have known they were doing them. December 1965, the birds record Eight Miles High, and yeah. Donovan records Sunshine Superman, which is probably the two... I mean, there's obviously lysergically, you know, acid-informed jazz and stuff like that, but it's a very, very odd state of affairs, and they take the two paths from there. Those, those two are the root, those two are the source, I think. They're very different in their approaches. The birds are trying to copy John Coltrane and Ravi Shankar and all this sort of thing and make the guitar sound like that. I don't really know what Donovan thought he was doing. I'm not entirely sure Donovan knew what he was doing, having met the man. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, that's, that's sort of where it comes from. And it's like that and disco are my two sort of... As people always go, oh, God, he's going about disco and psychedelia again. It's so boring. My, yeah, my, my two abiding passions in, in... My claim music. to fame was seeing Jimi Hendrix perform live at Aylesbury Town Hall. Wow, really? And uh, my friend John Underwood brother was the road manager so we got to take the kit the PA back into the van wow. and Jimi Hendrix and when he did Purple Haze <laughs> the wind cries Mary yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Did you cry? Oh, <laughs> I mean Purple Haze and hey Joe it's an amazing gig to have seen. When was this? 67 uh, I yeah. think 67 wow amazing. I couldn't you know I mean oh, wow <laughs> that was that's, that's history um, that anyway is Tame Impala's Elephant remixed by Canyons the original is on the album Lonerism which is out on the 8th of October on Modular uh, but you can uh, stream and download that track for nothing uh, on the internet um, if you go to Modular's website I think you've got to sign up give them your email address something like that and they send you a free download of that track um, ok that just about wraps it up for Singles Club Let's have a rummage in the uh, post bag after last week's show. Jesus Chrysler says on the Space Lady track, which Errol Olkin uh, brought in, it's actually a cover version of a track by Peter Schilling. I got the impression from the podcast they thought it was an original composition by her. I did think it was an original composition by her, actually. Jesus Chrysler. Um, the original was number one in several countries in 1983 and number 14 in the USA and still gets lots of radio play here. And the karaoke version crops up in Breaking Bad. Hmm. Educational. Nigel B asks, great to hear Errol Olkin, in particular that uh, Beyond the Wizard's Sleeve is still a going concern. I, I wholeheartedly concur with you, Nigel B. I'd also like to know the title of the Annie Lennox mashup he talked about. That's uh, Scribble Me This by Dara, I believe. Um, and Saul says, I'm a huge fan of Errol. So it was nice having him in as a guest. Nothing against the usual press pack reviewers, but it was good to hear an interview alongside a guest bringing music in too. Will this become a regular thing? Yes, we hope so. It's all down to, like, What's it down to? Yes, it, it will. Yes, it's it yes. will. It will. Well, no, don't, don't make promises you can't keep. Um, <laughs> it, it, yes, we, we, we are trying to get as many kind of different and varied people for your listening pleasure to come in and bring tracks uh, into Singles Club and to be interviewed. So, yes. So far, so good. So far, so good. Two, two out of two. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Right on. Thank you anyway for all your comments. Keep leaving them. Uh, now... With the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays both back on the Manchester scene in recent months, anyone will be forgiven for expecting the Charlottes to be out with a new record. But no, it's frontman Tim Burgess who's doing the rounds with his new album. It's his second solo album, I believe. Oh No, I Love You. It features collaborations with Factory Floor. Good old Factory Floor. Love Factory Floor. My Morning Jacket and Kurt Wagner. And it was Kurt Wagner that our man Casper Llewellyn-Smith asked Tim about when they met earlier this week. In 2000, Kurt played a solo gig in Manchester. And I helped him carry his equipment out. And as he was shutting the van door, I said to him, oh, we should write a song together. And um, he said, sure, Tim, uh, you write the music and I'll write the lyrics. We've met quite a few times in between and kind of, you know, you know, just chatted about it vaguely. But, you know, pretty much 10 years later, I got to do it. And then did you do that together? I mean, were you there in Nashville together doing that? Or was it a, very, a more modern way of working of you pinging it back and forth over the Internet? In, in April, I, I was there for two weeks. We would meet every morning and I would tell him what's, what's been going on and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, we'd just have a, a couple of hours conversation and then I would go back to my hotel room, uh, write some songs, throw in some words here and there, you know, melodies and stuff like that, and then send them by the internet to his house about a mile and a half away. Um, and uh, he would send me uh, by email the, the lyrics the following morning. And we did that 
um, in in the two weeks, I think we 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 had six, and then I went, you know, for the rest of the summer, I was, you know, doing four or five and send them over. And so you sent in the music, and he sent it back to you the next morning with the words. Uh, at first. Yeah, and then it slowed down a little bit. Did that not freak you out a little bit? That he wasn't trying hard enough. That I would have thought it takes quite a long time well, to, to write a song. I, I think the, the first one was actually the first track on the album, a song called White, and that came immediately o- o- overnight. And and I was thought, you know, if it carries on like this, it's going to be done really in the two weeks that I'm there. <laughs> How close do you feel to those early Charlatans records now? I mean, you just published the book earlier this year. And was that a kind of exorcism that you could put it all behind you? <laughs> or was it something that made you kind of relive it and, and sort of re-engage with it? In yeah, but, I mean, in lots of ways, it brought me closer to it and, and in lots of ways, because um, it, it's quite a long time ago. And, and, and telling stories and some friendly would actually um, done a series of, of shows, you know, just, just doing those albums. So while I was writing the book and they were going on and it kind of brought me closer to, to it in a lot of ways. Have you been to lots of those other shows yourself of kind of revivals and reunions and... No, and it was funny, while, while, while I was out there writing the record with Kurt, a lot of people have been asking him to do Nixon and, it, and he just point blank refuses to do it. I was doing it and he wasn't. And, what, and why did you go down that route? Just because you wanted um, the money or it felt like a kind of healthy thing to do? It felt like a healthy thing to do. Um, we, we did some friendly in between the albums You Cross My Path and Who We Touch. And that, I, I think, helped in some ways to write the next album. Uh, we're telling stories. Someone jumped on that because of the book and the title and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I was still prepared to do it. It was like four shows. I thought it was. In, I thought it was quite an interesting thing to do. Uh-huh. People, have, up, have people you already up. got bored with people? The the blowing cocaine up your bandmates' asses. Has that no. come to define no. uh, the book? The book, and are you worried that's going to define everything now? But no, no. no. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I did ask some of my closest friends whether that should go in, and 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 my closest friend said yeah it definitely should and, and and I agreed with them really I just wanted to hear it come out of somebody else's voice you know and you know I, I remember seeing Keith Richards saying that he snorted his, his dad's ashes up his nose and it's like it's such an outrage you know but everybody wanted to jump on the book you know and, and I thought it might have a similar kind of thing and when you were I don't want to dwell on this but when you were doing that at the <laughs> time were you did you have a little part of you in the back of your mind thought this is quite rock and roll this will be a good one to tell in the in the memoirs in the years to come I didn't, uh, but I probably thought it was quite rock and roll. Did, did you also have a bit in your head thinking this is not terribly hygienic and if your mum could watch you doing this, <laughs> she wouldn't be too impressed? Well, I think the thing about doing something like that is that you have to be pretty high to before you actually think about doing it. Tell me about the record, A Case for Vinyl, that Kurt wrote then. I mean, one thing I know about you is that you're kind of an obsessive music lover. He's got a massive musical collection. Yeah. So was that a kind of weird thing? Was that coming out of a conversation that you'd had with him? Or? Yeah. This parts of people's lives get filed away into maybe the back of the record collection when, it, when it's kind of not needed so much anymore. And then all of a sudden you can just find it and it brings back all these wonderful memories, you know, or uh, significant memories. And that's what A Case for Vinyl's really about. And uh, um, my... Uh, life had changed I wasn't with the person that, that I'd been with for 12 years so life was kind of like almost like an, a record collection where memories are, are, are grey uh, but they have to be kind of filed away and you're human getting along with things Yeah. just because I didn't win my playlist hasn't changed all that much Distant spins Where the needles bend Just because I didn't win 
Do you get things like uh, the last time we were writing about you in The Guardian, it was the news story about the cornflakes? Um, yeah, the Tulsam, uh, was it the Tulsam Aizwell cereal thing? Or? It was the, is there another, another cornflakes story? <laughs> I don't think there is, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a cereal, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it was something that I, that I suggested on... I, I overheard someone saying the phrase Tulsam Aizwells, which I, I thought was hilarious, and uh, I just wrote on Twitter that I thought it'd be a great idea for a breakfast cereal and I included Kellogg's in the tweet and they wrote back to me and said he should do it. And you can get this now. You can, you, you've got cases of it. I, I, I made, I made, bo- I had boxes made, right, with, uh, as, as someone drew a, a cartoon me. Again, on Twitter, I had a, this metaphorical, metaphysical diner that I opened, called it Tim Peaks and a festival this year, we had a pop-up diner called Tim Peaks and we sold Totes and Maze Wars and it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I thought was that you probably wouldn't get that living in America. That sounds like quite a British thing for, for someone to spot that and I think turn so. it I, into reality. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, very British, I think. It's not the end of the Charlatans, is it? I mean, no. still plans to. There's still plans to, to do another album next year. Although we haven't really got any songs yet, but, you know. But I mean, the, the, you know, the, this it's not it's not a closed door at all. And you've played the old records live again, but is it weird, particularly at the moment, with the Roses back and the amount of attention that that's getting, and the Mondays are touring and playing festivals and stuff? Do you feel a kind of warmth to that and enjoying it, or does you sort of slightly put it to one side? I was I was pretty ambivalent about um, about. Uh, the Stone Roses uh, getting back together. It wasn't until the afternoon of the second gig at Heaton Park that I decided to to go, and I thought it was, you know, just monumental. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So I was really pleased that I went. I just didn't really. It just wasn't me anymore, really. You know, I just didn't think about you know. But then on the day and in the evening, I just I got really excited and I thought it was fantastic. And yeah. And how true was it that you you know was it a scene back in the day where you hung around as a bit of a gang and everyone knew each other or is that a kind of bit of a myth from the outside no i, I well i didn't know them in manchester but i knew them in um, monmouth because everybody recorded there happy mondays uh, stone roses they, they were in rockfield we always uh, used to go to mono valley which is that the the one just down the just down the road but that's where we hung out and did you see the guys this time around did you go and i saw i saw money um but he was you know he's always running around and <laughs> you know so and, and he was he was really pleased that, that i went and he was really pleased that i enjoyed it you know um it meant a lot to him that was tim burgess talking to casper llewellyn smith oh no i love you is released on the first of october that's it for this week our thanks to peeper feeders tim burgess uh D- david rodigan thank you so much for coming in thank so you so much. much thank you for inviting me um music weekly was produced by matt hill and pascal wise we'll be back next week keep leaving your thoughts at guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly and have a great weekend bye-bye for more great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio